The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Six years ago, uh, this morning actually, that was my first official uh, Sunday here on April Fool's Day. And I think it incredibly appropriate that Easter, not for what you think, (laughs) thank you, Incredibly appropriate that Easter falls on April Fool's Day to say this is not foolishness. This isn't a joke and it's not a cosmic uh, prank, but this is the most important thing that you will ever have to deal with in your life, and that is what to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What if it's all true? It's an incredibly inconvenient truth, but it's a truth that we must acknowledge It's important to be seekers of truth and not worry about the implications of it because as seekers of truth, we say we want to know truth and allow then the cards to fall uh, as they may, the chips to go as they may. And so we're coming this morning and we're approaching uh, the passages of Scripture and this most essential truth of the resurrection and saying, what if it's real? What are the implications then for me and for you? So let's read from God's Word again this morning. Uh, We have read from John, and that is the uh, narrative of uh, looking at the disciples as they came to the tomb and the women who came uh, to the tomb. And so I'm not going to repeat that by reading the Luke passage, but we're going to look at Roman or in 1 Corinthians now, uh, chapter 15, and pick up with Paul, uh, the apostle. Not one who saw Christ there on his resurrection day, but later was encountered by uh, the resurrected Christ. And Paul, uh, the great teacher and apostle in the church, comes now and teaches us these words. This is the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. This is the very word of God. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask now that you would teach us. For we come to know truth. We come to understand We would ask now that if we do not know, that you will teach. And if we do not have, you will give to us. And what we are not, you will make us. To Christ be the glory. Amen. This morning as we get going, I want to acknowledge the representation of this group that is gathered together. In this group this morning, some of you are followers of Jesus Christ and you have centered your life upon Christ. That you would say, I am a Christian, and in the best of your ability, by the power of the Spirit, you live a life that represents that faith claim, that worldview. Then there are others of you who are here who would say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but there's little to no evidence within the course of your life that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would come intermittently to church at best. Uh, but you want to make sure uh, that you're right with God, and so you would claim to be a follower of Christ, even though most likely you probably aren't. You don't necessarily believe all of these things or even the essential things of this. And then some of you who are here this morning don't believe any of it, that you uh, are not a person who would pursue or believe in Jesus Christ, and that you're here basically to get somebody you love off your back, that you're looking forward to brunch and you told your mother-in-law you would come to church, that whatever the motive is, we are all here, mixed together from different places of faith, from different places of belief, and it is my expectation and my prayer that all of us would be encouraged, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, that your faith would be strengthened today, that the resurrection would become more real to you, Uh, that it would be applied deeper into your life. If you are nominal in your faith and sort of hover around uh, and want to sort of know Jesus, I pray that he becomes very real to you today and that your life is transformed in the midst of that. And if you have no interest in Jesus at all, I hope today uh, that your life, at least you begin to acknowledge, what do I do with this Savior? What do I do? Because you see, the fact of the resurrection is this. We have to do something with it. There's a simple question that we have. What if it's all true? What if it's all true? And on the flip side of that, what if it's not true? Paul was acknowledging that in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, when he said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our teaching is in vain. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, not only is our teaching uh, in vain, but no one has been raised from the dead. And we above all people should be pitied. That there really is no hope in this life because if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection of the dead. And we should go out and we should eat and we should drink and we should be merry for tomorrow we die. 
We have to do something. Either it's real and there are implications, or it's not real and there are implications. And in full disclosure, I want to put my cards on the table for you today. I am approaching this from the position that believes wholeheartedly that it is an an historic fact that Jesus Christ died physically, he was buried physically, and he rose physically from the dead, resurrected, and is now seated, ascended in glorified bodily form by the right hand of God the Father and is going to return again one day. That's what I believe. Because that's what the Bible teaches. That's an orthodox understanding of the Scriptures. So I want to make sure that coming out of the gate, you know exactly where I'm coming from. That that is the orientation of my life, and that is the orientation of the Orthodox Church, those who would follow the Gospel. And so this morning, as we begin uh, to look at this section of Scripture, as we begin to look at this profound piece of historic narrative, We're going to approach it in three ways. From a cultural perspective, what is the world around us? How does the world around us deal with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? From a biblical perspective, how does the Bible deal with it? What are the internal truths and evidences from the Bible uh, that give us perspective on it? And then finally, what's your personal and my personal perspective on it? So we're going to look at a cultural perspective, a biblical perspective, and then a personal perspective on this. You see, from a cultural perspective, let's begin here. In our culture, in our day and age, it is perfectly acceptable for you to be seeking God. It's just not acceptable for you to find Him. It is perfectly acceptable for you to be seeking God along whatever path you want to seek Him, but it is not acceptable for anyone to say, I have found Him, or worse yet, He has found me. Because we live in a time uh, which says that tolerance demands uh, that we accept all things to be equally true. A redefinition of pluralism has happened within the world. Pluralism simply says, and by the way, God was a pluralist. And you're going to go, ooh, anathema. No, in the garden, he allowed a contrary view to the truth. He allowed Satan to be in the garden. But God was a true pluralist in saying there can be differing opinions about a certain thing, but there cannot be two opposing truths. Either 2 plus 2 equals 4 or 2 plus 2 equals 5. It can't equal both from what I, in my simple mind, gathered. Although I had a a Cal Berkeley professor of applied nuclear physics tell me that yes, it can. I said, for my illustration, let's just leave it. Two plus two equals four. And he said, okay, Bill. (laughs) But two truths about the same thing can't be true if they're in opposition to one another. But in our culture, we've defined to say not only do all views have to be able to be in the public arena, but all truths are equally true, or all opinions are equally true. You see, we live in a world that basically says it doesn't matter if something actually happened as long as you have faith in its happening. It doesn't matter really if something is historic as long as you believe that it's historic. And what's wrong is when you impose your views or your path on anyone else. And in the spiritual reality or in the religious place of the church, What happened a number of years ago, and still happens today, is within the places of higher uh, academia, 
within the uh, universities that are loosely associated with old school uh, and old mainline uh, denominations. And in the theological education in those same places, it basically said this. Jesus didn't literally raise from the dead, but if you experienced a, a resurrection, that's good. It doesn't matter if he actually historically raised from the dead as long as you've experienced a resurrection in your life. And therefore, Muslims can experience the resurrection, and Jews can experience the resurrection, and Christians and Eastern mystics can all, because it doesn't really matter if Jesus raised from the dead. Because here's what happened. When Jesus died, he was put in the tomb, and he never came out of the tomb And Peter, his close and dear friend, was overwhelmed with grief because Peter had treated his friend so poorly that on a night when he needed him the most, Peter denied him three times. And Peter was overwhelmed with grief and needed to know forgiveness. And so Peter, over the course of time, experienced forgiveness. Not because Jesus was raised from the dead, but because he experienced forgiveness and then wrote John 21. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? That restoration, that didn't really happen. But it's good that Peter experienced forgiveness. Because what's happened in the higher literary place is basically that these stories have become literalistic, symbolic representations of higher truths. Emmaus, the road to Emmaus, when Jesus walked with the disciples and he talked with them and he was sharing with them and it said their hearts became strangely warm within them. That's awesome. But Emmaus never happened. But Emmaus happens all the time. Is what the higher literary thought would be. And that's permeated within academics. It's permeated within uh, certain theological and seminary circles. And it has gotten down into the church. And here's what it sounds like in the church. A few years ago, some friends of mine were leaving church. I was so thrilled that they had gone to church and taken their kids because I knew that they weren't church people, that they didn't accept uh, all of this stuff, and that they thought that I was crazy. That I was the guy who used to enjoy life with them and party with them and do all of that. And I had a radical transformation and conversion to Jesus Christ. And they're like, well, that's true for you. And that's good. And then they went to church. And it's like, this is awesome. And they went to Easter. Even more awesome. This is cool. And they wrote on Facebook back when you actually put personal things on on Facebook. And not political things and selling something and so. And they wrote, great day in church today. Now to explain the kids, it's all a myth. Huh. But that's the thought process in our culture today. And then you take that and you bring it down to what to do with Jesus. Because Jesus Christ was the most controversial and the most popular figure in all of history. He's been on the cover of more magazines than anybody else. That even in other religions they speak and have to deal with him. Do you realize, you understand that Jesus is written about in the Quran? Because they have to deal with him. You have to do something about Jesus. And what you really have to do something with is this tomb. What do we do with an empty tomb? What do we do with the resurrection story? What do we do with the narrative? And there's all kinds of stories uh, and theories about it. But let me give you four of the most popular theories that are out there from a cultural place. And these are being taught regularly uh, within uh, churches, uh, within uh, schools, and within seminaries. Uh, The first is this. And by the way... I'm going to go ahead and put my cards out on the table again for you. These are crazy. 
It takes more faith to believe these than it does that the tomb was actually empty. Because listen to some of this. And these are really well-educated people working incredibly hard to deal with a reality that they don't know what to do with. The first is the wrong tomb theory. Mary, in the midst of her grief, went to the wrong tomb. Anybody ever gone to the wrong place? Bad directions? Mary, you're going to go down here, you're going to take a left on the small path, you're going to pass by that dead fig tree, and then you're going to go up, and you're going to go, and there's the tomb. And she went to the wrong tomb, and she ran into the tomb, and it was empty. And she went, this is awesome, he's resurrected. And she ran back to the disciples, and she went back to the disciples. She said, I found the empty tomb, isn't this awesome? And so Peter and John, I love John's description that we read earlier, isn't it great? John was the other one who was running, and he said, Peter, big fatso Peter, and I were running, and Peter was so out of breath that he had to stop, and I made it to the tomb first. And I had to wait for old fatso as he came up. And so they finally got there, and guess what Peter uh, and uh, John had done? They'd gone to the wrong tomb, too. Everybody went to the wrong tomb. And so that explains the resurrection. It was the wrong tomb. If it was the wrong tomb, and there was a tomb, two tombs over, with a dead body of Jesus... Don't you think that the rulers of the Jews and of Rome would have just shown the body and said, here's the correct tomb, he's still dead. It doesn't make sense. You can try it, but it just doesn't hold water. It's not strong enough to put the balance of your life on. Here's another one, grief hallucinations. That the the, the disciples were so overwhelmed with grief that in the midst of their grief, they hallucinated the presence of Jesus. They wanted him to be alive so badly that they saw him. And this has plausibility because those who have experienced great grief of the loss of a loved one sometimes have hallucinated and seen their loved one, felt their presence with them in a sense. Okay, but Paul says Jesus appeared to 500. So are we to believe that 500 people had a group hallucination? Bad wine? A little bit of bad something there at the feast. What happened? Or could it simply be again? That's not a very plausible explanation for the resurrection. One of the most popular ones is called the swooning theory. And the swooning theory was Jesus was crucified. And Jesus was buried in the tomb. But he wasn't really dead. That it's sort of Princess Bride theology. He was mostly dead. And so he was there, beaten within an inch of his life, stabbed uh, with a spear through his ribs into the heart and into the lungs, bleeding profusely with gashes everywhere. And he, in the tomb, woke up somewhere within that 72-hour period. And that he, in this midst of great pain and suffering and weakness, rolled the tombstone away from the inside... And then drug himself to the apostles' place of hiding and was able to convince them that he was the conqueror of death and the king of life. But the problem with that is he would have died. Again. And there still would be a body. Now it's possible, it's plausible, because what's happened in history is some people have actually been buried and they thought they were dead, and when they had exhumed them from their graves, they had found scratch marks within uh, the caskets. And even in the Civil War, they had found men who were buried, and they had pulled out their hair because they had been buried alive by accident. If anybody in the world knew how to kill someone, it was the Romans in the first century. They were expert at it. They pierced Christ 
into his heart and lung so much and with such precision that water and blood bled out so they could see, okay, he is actually dead. He is fully asphyxiated uh, on his uh, blood and on the fluid in his body, and he is dead, dead. And so it's hard to believe that he swooned at that point. And then the last one, and one uh, that again has a lot of traction uh, within the world today, is that the body was stolen. That the disciples stole the body of Jesus, and they made up the resurrection account. That they made it up. That they went, this group of disciples... Now again, think about that. Think about how the disciples were described within scriptures. They weren't top shelf guys. They were generally shown to be knuckleheads. Of Jesus had just talked about humility within the kingdom. He goes, hey, the greatest is going to be the least. The least is going to be the greatest. And James and John said, so who's first among us? Like, really, fellas? And then, and then Peter. Oh, Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the son of God. Hey, Peter, flesh and blood can't say that, but God had to let you know that. That's awesome. And then he said, so I'm heading over to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be destroyed, and I'm going to uh, be killed. And he said, no, 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 you can't go there. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who, by the way, was an excellent swordsman. Because when Peter was confronting those who were going to arrest Jesus, he was so good that he missed a servant's entire body and cut off the part of his ear. So you're telling me that this group of, of fishermen and of tax collectors and of knuckleheads has somehow, over the course of a few hours, turned into Navy SEAL team. And they are going to go in and they are going to overwhelm the Roman guard and they are with great stealth going to take the body and with great detail, why in the world would they have taken off his linen clothes? A little detail that's in the Scriptures. If you're taking the body and you're trying to get in and out of there so quickly, you would have just taken the whole body. So they stole it. And they stole it and they are now creating a false religion about a false savior who died and didn't really raise from the dead. And all of the original disciples were martyred brutally. And not one of them ever recanted. Really. I'm supposed to stake my life on this. That Peter was was crucified upside down. That John, the beloved one, was boiled alive. And he lived and they were so freaked out that the fact that they lived, that they sent his boiled body over to Patmos to live in isolation for the rest of his days. And all of these men and all of these women were going to stand on a lie. And we're going to say, fine, I will be torn apart because of a body that I stole from a tomb. I doubt it. I doubt it. So, there's been a twist on the stolen body. And it's not that the disciples stole the body, but it's that the Jewish authorities stole the body. And the reason that the Jewish authorities stole the body was to keep the disciples from stealing the body. Well, that makes perfect sense. Because then, when they wanted to eradicate Christianity, guess what they needed to do? Produce a body. And it would have all ended. Jesus was raised from the dead. No, he's not. We got him right over here. 
No, really, there's an empty tomb. Yes, there is. We have the body. We're going to produce it. We're going to hang it on a wall. We're going to put it out for public display. And this thing is going to end right now. But they didn't. Why? They didn't have the body. No one did. He was resurrected from the dead. And so, for you to consider uh, these things, I want you to fully engage your mind. So I give these to you, not because I think they're plausible or they're right, but I want you to consider why it is that maybe you don't believe the resurrection. Because the resurrection is imperative. You've got to make a decision on it. You've got to fall one way or the other. So culture would say it didn't happen, and culture comes up with all kinds of reasons for it. And you have to decide, are those good reasons? But let's look internally. What does the Bible say about itself? What's the internal evidence within the Bible about the resurrection? Well, the first thing is this. The resurrection is preached within the Bible as an historic fact. It is not preached as theory. It is not presented as plausible. It is presented as historic. You see, the resurrection is the key to the entirety of Scripture. The resurrection paired with the cross brings into full clarity all of the Scriptures. And so what we learn about all of the Scriptures is that all of the Scriptures is about Jesus. And that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then none of it matters. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, really, literally, just throw this thing away. Or keep it as interesting reading, but do not stake your eternal salvation on it. Because Jesus was saying, listen, my resurrection validates everything else that's in here. My resurrection, given with the cross, it makes everything else make sense. That's what the Bible teaches, that all of Scripture is about Jesus. And what we see from the internal perspective, the biblical perspective, is that the Bible is written as a historically accurate narrative. That the writers are writing in order. John said he wrote his gospel so that you would believe. Luke wrote Luke and Acts And he wrote them that we might believe these things. Luke was a physician. He was a scientist. He was uh, articulate and he was detailed. And so you see them coming through. And the Bible is writing these from a historic place. From a place of fact and a place of narrative. And so you have to ask the question. Cicero asked famously, Qui bono, who does it benefit? Who does it benefit for the Bible to make all of this up. What's the benefit of it? And for the Bible to write in the way that it was writing. If the biblical writers were fabricating a story and they wanted to develop a following, why in the world did they write the way that they did? Have you ever considered that? If you're trying to write a narrative and you're trying to dupe people, it may be good to have really solid people as your leaders and not Peter, James, and John. And if you're wanting to write some sort of false narrative to try to get people to come and to follow you, in the first century, you wouldn't have had women be your initial witnesses. You know why? This isn't me, by the way. First century, a woman had absolutely zero standing within Jewish and Roman uh, jurisprudence. Her testimony was the same as the testimony of a dog. If you wanted equal testimony, call your dog up to the stand because your dog had the same 
amount of validity that a woman did. How come if these guys were trying to write something to dupe the world into following Jesus, that they allowed women who had no voice to be the voice? To be the first people who found the empty tomb. Could it possibly be that they were writing it because it actually was true? It actually happened that way. That Jesus was trying to say, listen, this whole thing is turned on its ear. There is an honor and a dignity to all humans. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Uh, There is neither black nor white. There is neither any of this that in me we are one and equal in that. The women were the first witnesses. And if they were fabricating a a lie, what benefit is it to the disciples? What did they benefit from it? In today's age, we go, oh, it's about money and power. Sadly, it is that in today's age. But was it really that in the first century? Money and power. All of them martyred. Brutally martyred. Led into the Roman uh, gladiators and into the Colosseum to be shredded and torn apart. What benefit would have been? Unless it was true. You see, the disciples were writing from a place of just saying, this is what we saw. And the details in it are amazing. Consider some of these things. You first, some other internal evidence real quickly. All the Old Testament prophecies, they predict the resurrection. Jesus taught in great detail about the resurrection on his way to Jerusalem, Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then when the angels were there at the tomb, they said, don't you remember what Jesus taught you on the way to Galilee? He's pointing back to Mark 8, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, all of those places. And that in the Bible, when the resurrection is argued, it is argued almost exclusively from a place of saying, go talk to those who saw it, not believe this by faith. When they talk about the resurrection, they say, don't just believe by faith. Go talk to 500 people. You ever wondered why so many names were included? Secular uh, historians say that when you look at ancient documents and you see a lot of names uh, that are in there, the reason they put the names is the same reason we today put footnotes. It's to say this is true. It's a footnote. You don't believe me? Well, go talk to them. You don't believe me? Go talk to these 500, most of whom are still alive. And again, today we would go, that doesn't help us, but it sure did in the first century when they were alive. And so you see this, consider this internal uh, evidence, and then to consider for a moment some of what somebody would, uh, some have called historic circumstantial evidence. The disciples, again, this group and band of knuckleheads, these disciples, all of a sudden, Something different happened to them. They went from being terrified and in a room where, by the way, on that great Easter morning, do you know what they were doing in the room? They were not writing the first uh, translation of up from the grave he rose. No, they were terrified. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And how is it that these men who didn't believe very shortly after that Peter who denied Jesus to a slave girl, by the way, would now, just a few weeks later, stand in front of thousands in Jerusalem and preach about Jesus and be brought in in front of the very same people who threatened and said, we did this to Jesus, we can do it to you. And he said, I have to preach. How do you explain that sort of transformation? How do you do it? Something happened to Peter. He saw Jesus. 
He saw Jesus and was forever changed. What about this? Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus' own family believed in him? Try to pull that one off. I have a sister named Linda. It would be really odd. Hey, Linda, just want to let you know something about your little brother. I'm God. And if she believes me, that says an awful lot about her. Um, (laughs) But what is it that happened? Because if Jesus was just some sort of magician, and he'd learned his tricks of the trade when they were hiding in Egypt as a little boy, all of a sudden, later on, how is it that his younger brother James became a pillar of the church? So much so that James and Mary, his mother, bowed down and worshipped him. How is it? It's because they saw him dead and buried and then saw him alive. This James, his, his younger brother, became a pillar of church so that at his last days, he was thrown over a wall. And his legs were crushed and broken. And while he was on the ground suffering in pain, tradition says that he was praying for those who had persecuted him. And they were so upset with him that they bludgeoned his head in. How do you explain a little brother saying, Jesus is actually God, except that he saw him after the grave? And he said, this isn't just my little brother. This is my God and my King. And I'm different because of it. Have you ever thought about the circumstantial evidence that worship got moved from Saturday to Sunday? You ever tried to change something in the church? (laughs) But somehow, something that had happened for all of this time, now worship was on the first day. Why? Because something happened on that day. Jesus was raised from the dead. And even first century secular writers like Josephus and Seculus and Pliny the Younger, they wrote about some crazy things that happened. You see, this is all evidence, but it's not going to convince you. And here's where we'll end. What's your perspective on this? That's what really matters. You have to determine today what you're going to do with this. What you're going to do with the resurrection. C.S. Lewis made this great, wrote this great quote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says, thy will be done. Only two kinds of people. Those that say to God, God, thy will be done. And those whom God looks at and says, no, thy will be done. And we have to decide today where you're going to fall. How are you going to deal with all of this? You see, the resurrection says that there is a hope for the future. The resurrection says that there is a hope that is so strong that it can handle the weight of your soul. It can handle the weight of your life. It can handle your life. That we look at the resurrection and we realize that the resurrection is real. And that if it's real, then there is something more to this life. We are part of something grander. We are not just, as Kansas would say, dust in the wind. That it's personal. That we find ourselves in Christ. Every other world religion at some level says this, lose yourself, become part of something else, and then when you die, you become part of the all soul. You become part of the universe. You become part of the Lion King circle of life. Your grass that gets eaten by this, and a bird eats the worm, and somebody eats the bird, and the bird becomes that, and so you keep on in that. What dignity is there in that? But the resurrection says it's personal. 
you rise from the dead. Your life is transformed. And the lives of your loved ones in the midst of it. That we find our true selves and we live forever in that beauty. And it's certain, not only is it real and personal, but it's certain. Christ's death paid the penalty for our sin. Our sins were legitimate, therefore. Somebody had to pay them. They weren't light and fluffy. They had to be handled. And they were handled completely in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection proves that Jesus' payment was accepted by God on your behalf. And here's what I want. I heard this. I thought it was such a great picture. I want you to consider that in your pocket, you are now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, by faith you have believed and received this grace and mercy, that in your pocket you have a receipt that says paid in full. And that when you stand one day before God, and we all will die, our eyes will dim and our bodies will give out, and we will stand before our Creator, we will hand Him a receipt that says paid in full. And it's the assurance of our life and that every day that you live, reach into your pocket and feel it there. When the evil one tries to say, no, you are beyond hope. No, Jesus paid it in full. When you start to think even in in arrogance that your sins are somehow beyond the reach and the scope of the cross, you go, no, it's paid in full. It is a certainty upon which I'm staking my life. And not only is it real, and not only is it personal, and not only is it certain, but it is, one writer put it, it is indescribably wonderful. In the resurrection, you were resurrected. And your life is absolutely and totally transformed. Life is all about irreversible loss, isn't it? How many of you enjoyed yesterday? Anybody? Wow. What a bummer of a day. I had a great day yesterday. But you know what there is about yesterday? I can never get it back. And we say so often, I wish I could just go back to that moment. But it's lost. I wish I could just go back and experience. I wish I could go back and experience my loved ones who are gone. I wish I could remember their voices. But they're lost. Forever. Some of you who are single and are standing for Jesus in your singleness and in your abstinence and in your purity, somehow the world is saying you're missing out on something. And Jesus is saying you're not losing anything because the resurrection, you get it back a hundredfold. You will not have lost out on anything in this life. Not in your barrenness, not in your singleness, not in anything. Because in the resurrection, you get it back. And you get it back in complete fullness. Isn't that good news? Or you just die and it clips off. Jesus says, no, the resurrection is a fullness of life that we've been given. You will miss nothing, my friends. We will miss nothing. Our bodies will be restored. Our relationships with loved ones in Christ will be restored. We will miss nothing. So here's where we'll end today. Some of you are going to say your first amen ever in church. Amen. Thank God. Got lunch, McCutcheon, deviled eggs, and all those kind of things. Before you leave, let me ask you this. What are you going to do with the resurrection? You have to settle this issue. Some of you are offended by the moral and ethical teachings within Scripture. You don't like some of the moral, ethical teachings of Scripture. I'm going to ask you for a moment to set those aside. Because what you have to deal with is this. If Christ 
rose from the dead, then you have to deal with all those other things. But for now, just deal with him. Did he rise from the dead? And if you are saying he did, then you'll figure the rest of it out and we'll figure that out together. But folks, here's the deal. You must settle this issue today. What if it's all real? And it is. It's an incredibly inconvenient truth. Because here's the thing. When you accept Christ as your resurrected Savior and King, it transforms and changes your entire life. It has to. It has to. How many of you got married? Anybody been married? The next day, was life different? Was it? Yeah, you were married. (laughs) Guys, you couldn't go dating anybody else. Ladies, you couldn't go dating anybody else. You were married. It's the same way in Christianity. When you become a Christian, you're changed. Intrinsically and forever changed. It matters. So, Matt, I'm going to go ahead and invite you guys to come on back up. And as they're coming back up, I want you to answer this question. When you see the Lord, do you want Him to say, Thy will be done? Or do you want to be able to say to Him, Thy will be done? You have to choose today. So friends, let me encourage you, choose wisely. It comes down to that today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you've given us a hope that goes beyond this life. You've given us something that we can stake our very souls upon. And it is true in a world that is filled with half-truths and innuendo. We are so thankful that there's something that bears the weight of our souls. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. And I pray that those who are here who are wrestling with this decision, who are wrestling with this truth, would be settled on it today. For this is the key upon which everything turns. Did he rise from the dead? And we believe that he did. To him be all glory. Amen.